Good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Buonasera, buona noche, buongiorno. Benvenuti nell'ora più importante di tutta la tua vita questa settimana senza controversia. Welcome to the most important hour of your whole life this week without dispute. Yes, welcome to The Way It Is, the official Bobby Galinsky podcast, episode 26. And today is Friday, the 18th of September, 2020. How's everyone? It's cold, wet, and rainy here in Melbourne, but as you would know from previous podcasts, it doesn't really matter. What difference at this point does it make? Because we can't leave. We can't leave. Lockdown, the most excruciating lockdown in the entire world, worse than even Wuhan, where the flu started, the Wu flu. And um, we're not going anywhere with that because, as I said last week, we're just going to leave it alone, let things take their course. We'll talk about some sidebars and things like that, things around the world. Like a little piece of news that just hit the newspaper today from the Wall Street Journal a paper that can be trusted from time to time. New Zealand, if you don't know where New Zealand is, it's um, a tiny little country that's relatively close to Australia. It's kind of like America's Puerto Rico. I wouldn't say America's Canada, because I love a lot of Canadians. I still love Neil Young and um, Burton Cummings and uh, Donuts. And hockey. But New Zealand's kind of, it's a sad little place. It's a sad little place. I've got some friends from New Zealand. Russell Crowe is from New Zealand. He's not a friend. And we call him Australian here now, but he's from New Zealand. But more importantly, the whole idea of this is to just delve right into the fact that New Zealand analysts released last week who argued the cost of saving each year of life from COVID-19, each year of life had been about $8 million per person or about 190 times, 190 times the usual sum spent to save a year of life, according to regulatory economist Martin Lally, which makes me wonder, is any Kiwi's life worth $8 million, let alone just for one year? Thanks, Jacinta. I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I'm putting it out there for your conundrum of the week, for your preposterous woo-flu-poo ponderification. Have a thought. And um, a lot of things happening right now. Jupiter just went direct. Mars is retrograde. And Mystic Medusa says, you know, lots of weird things are going to be happening around money. Uh, and weird instant money and things like that. Not good to make long-term business plans this week. And uh, what else has really happened on this day? Well, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. My firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. On this day in history, we're going to go straight into it because it's heavy. Because we're going to go back not to the 12th century, not to the 5th century. We've actually gone back to the 3rd century a few times. I mean, maybe even before Christ. But we're going back to YFZ. Year fucking zero. Year zero, not the Pol Pot Cambodian year zero, which is where we are right now in Victoria, but true year zero, because tonight, tonight here in the Southern Hemisphere, September 18, 2020, it's Rosh Hashanah. And for you non-Jews, the Goyim and the rest, Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of the universe. The birthday of the universe. It's the day God created Adam and Eve, according to Judaism, of which I uh, am a, um, I do barrack for it from time to time. And it's celebrated as the head of the Jewish year. It begins at sundown tonight on the eve of Tishrei 1, 
which is tonight. The Jewish calendar does uh, not quite correspond with the um, Gregorian calendar, and it ends after nightfall on Tishrei 2, which will be September 20th, 2020 this year, September 20, 2020. The central observance, in case you didn't know, or in case you were like me, you're a Reformed Jew and you really didn't get the hardcore learning when you grew up, um, and I'm eating a nice bacon sandwich while I'm, while I'm reading this, kosher bacon, of course. The central observance of Rosh Hashanah, actually I didn't have bacon, but I did have some fantastic chorizo sausage for lunch today. And it's Don's chorizo sausage, which is amazing chorizo. This chorizo that you can get for like $100-$200 a kilo. When I was in Cannes uh, at Cannes Film Festival a number of years ago with my friend Suhei Blado, we went to this amazing French butcher and they had the best A5 mega score Spanish chorizo. And it was like $200 a kilo. And it was amazing. But this Don's that you just get at the grocery store here, which is pretty mainstream, is astonishing. You should try it if you're here in Australia. Anyway, how did we get on to that? Oh, yes, because that's not kosher, but I'm Jewish. The duality of man. The central observance of Rosh Hashanah is blowing the shofar, not blowing the shofar. Um, for those of you whose mind went to that, but blowing the shofar, which is a ram's horn. On both mornings, you know, people going, blowing the shofar? No, this isn't for Don Lemon. Blowing the shofar. On both mornings of the holiday, except on Shabbat, which is normally done in synagogue as part of the day services, but may be done elsewhere for those who cannot attend. Rosh Hashanah feasts traditionally include round challah bread studded with raisins and apples dipped in honey as well as other foods that symbolize our wishes for a sweet year. Other Rosh Hashanah observances include candle lighting in the evenings and drinking the blood of Christian children. No, just kidding. And together with Yom Kippur, which follows 10 days later, it is part of the Yamim Noraim, the Days of Awe, or High Holiday. Days of Awe sounds like, you know, something that's going to be in the new Dune film. The trailer looks incredible. So that's a little bit about the Jewish high holidays. Now, the very orthodox, I'm kind of curious how this is going to pan out in Melbourne, because with the lockdown, you can't have any guests or anything over, um, not for the next 11 and a half years or whatever. So because it is, you know, religious services and family gatherings and extended family and things like that, I don't know how this is going to happen, because I doubt that Dictator Dan is going to give any exemptions for this, although he did give exemptions for the mosque on their Ramadan to have large gatherings, which um, kind of shits me no less. Um, but now we're in stage four, and uh, we'll see what happens. And I suspect the Orthodox Jews will probably gather. They'll break the law. I'm not either way on that one. I'm going to leave that one alone. But it does ponder my curiosity. So now that we've gone all the way back to year zero, the creation, you know, what was before Adam and Eve? <laughs> really, what was before Adam and Eve? Dinosaurs and things like that. And, um, and if we're going back uh, to this Adam and Eve thing, how did God ever get a rib off of Adam to create Eve? I love ribs. I don't care how deep asleep I am. If I got ribs, you're not going to get any fucking ribs off me. And I'm just your average Midwestern Jewish white boy. So people were wondering whether Adam and Eve were black or white. Do the math on that one. So God would have had to have been one stealthy mofo to grab some rib from Adam. Um, that story doesn't hold up. I think that was actually the first case of fake news. Fake news. Fake Jews. Now, since we've gone back to all those dates, let's bring it way, way up to 1947 on this day in history because I want to get through this I'm just it's a it's a lackadaisical kind of 18th of September there really wasn't much online at all we did have a nice little commemorative commemoration this week that my youngest son Stephen was born on the 16th and he turned 39 
So it's the last birthday of his 30s. So a shout out to my son, Steve, up in Northern California. 40 next year. <laughs> Whoa. Anyway, but let's go up to 1947. On this day in 1947, the CIA officially came into existence after being established by President Truman in July. The CIA, which used to do things overseas, until CIA Director John Brennan decided to spy on the Trump administration. They don't have much going on anymore. 1951. Uh, actually, thank God for the CIA, though, because we've had a lot of great movies about the CIA, things like that, like The Falcon and the Snowman, um, which we'll talk about a little bit later on in case you missed it. In 1951, A Streetcar Named Desire, directed by Elia Kazan and based on Tennessee Williams, a Astounding 1947 play of the same name, starring Marlon Brando, and Vivian Leigh was released. Birthdays in 1961, James Gandolfini, Tony Soprano, was born. Sad that he died in 2013. Interesting that his son is the lead in The Many Saints of Newark, which is the Sopranos prequel, which is in production. In 1963... A sad day for Mets fans. The final game at the Polo Grounds on this day in 1963, 1,752 saw the Phillies beat the Mets 5-1. to Bye-bye, Polo Grounds. And lastly, in 2004, Russ Meyer, the American film director of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, died at 82. So see, really had to fill up today in history. And it always interests me because um, kind of means that really nothing much is going to happen until next week where we've got, I looked ahead, I cheated, say, whoa, massive. I could have done this week in history, but that's a bit of a cheat because I like to think of the days having a certain resonance through the ages, you know, weeks, months, years, decades, centuries, eons, for that similarity that neuron-specific ramification of nanotechnology through the wormhole in parallel universes that tears the wrath and pours the fabric of our cosmos into a never-ending repeat of our lives over and over again. Do you think that you had a past life? I think I've had some past lives. I think it was actually, which is strange for a Jew, but I think I was a pharaoh at one point, I kind of had these recurring dreams of me sitting on some giant throne with a staff and, you know, ordering slaves around, you know, Jewish slaves and things like that. Not quite sure what that suggests. Never got that, never got that answered. Should have brought that up in a clinical hypnosis, past life conjuring, pre-birthing seminar. Something kind of out of the blue and out of left field that I thought about today Uh, when they're talking about vaccines and things like that, is um, really, why didn't we just turn everything upside down? Why didn't everyone on the planet, or at least in Australia, instead of closing things down, completely open things up? But I'm not talking like Sweden, which kind of kept things open and kind of quarantined the elderly a little bit and asked people to be responsible because Swedes can do that, you know, Australians, you know, you got a curfew. Fuck is. What if they just opened everything up completely and forced open that you had to be outside? You had to be out constantly. Everything was open 24-7. You had to hug strangers. You know, think about it. Get completely let the virus run through the country flat out, which it would have done in weeks, may, maybe a month. Then everyone would have been exposed to it. The strong would have lived. The weak and the very weak would have gone to the hospital and many would have died. And yeah, the hospital system would have been overrun for a while, but then it would have been really like one big giant vaccination. All the vaccination is is giving you a little exposure to the disease itself or the virus. So we would have gone through the whole thing before Easter. If we started in, in March, everyone would have had it or been immune to it. A heap of people would have died. All the people that bitching coming out of medical school going, oh, there's no jobs for doctors. There'd be heaps. There's so many medical workers would have died. There'd be heaps of jobs for nurses and doctors. Lots of teachers would have died, the old ones. 
fine. Let's get fresh teachers in. Let's get everything, you know, fat people, old people, um, everything. It's just, you know, all the weak, all the comorbid, all the comorbidity cases. This would have been a complete, absolute wipeout of the weak and infirm, and we would have started fresh with fewer people and fresh people. Now, might have hurt housing prices a bit. I just kind of thought of that, but um, certainly worth looking at, or certainly worth doing a mini series on or a TV series. So, somebody out there that's looking for a premise, yes, here it is. You're welcome. Now, a lot of people reacted very emotionally to last week's um, podcast, especially since it fell on the commemorative day 19 years of. 9-11, the World Trade Center attack. And um, you know what I failed to put in the podcast is really a kind of a where were you? And, and people that were born less than 20 years ago, kids wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be very cognizant of a lot of that. But um, myself, I was uh, sound asleep on the sofa. Uh, I'd been watching The West Wing and... Um, I fell asleep, and the phone rings. I wake up. It's the middle of the night. I go, who's calling? Who's calling? And um, 2001, all it just said was no caller ID because back then mobiles didn't show foreign numbers. Anyway, I answer the phone, and I go, hello, hello. It was my mom, and she's yelling, Bob, Bob, we're being attacked. We're being attacked. I thought I was still sound asleep. I thought this was kind of a weird, weird dream. And that we're being attacked, we're being attacked. I go, what are you talking about? And she says, are you watching TV, watching TV? And I look over at the TV, which I'd fallen asleep to. And the video of the planes hitting the, the towers was on. Um, even talking about it right now absolutely stuns me. It brings me right back to it. Um, Miss my mom and dad, rest in peace. But that that just uh, couldn't process it. Absolutely couldn't process it. And, and one thing that was kind of nice, and I, I guess nice might even be the, might not even be the right term for it, but the, the day after it, on 9-12, I mean, I'd never want another 9-11, but I, I do kind of miss the America of 9-12. Um, I know that even here in Australia, stores ran out of flags, American flags to sell because they were being flown everywhere. My neighbors everywhere had American flags out. And, you know, people were Americans first before they were upper or lower class or middle class or whatever, Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Republic or Democrat. And, you know, people were hugging people without caring if they ate at Chick-fil-A or wore Nikes or, or whatever. Back, back on that day, what mattered more was what united all of us rather than what divided all of us. Um, maybe one day we can be there again. Doubt it, but... Um, it took a catastrophe to to unite the country. It was ne never like that since we had landed on the moon. Sounds of the theremin soothe us into science, bitches. And this week in science, bitches, from Nature magazine, Zoland Tweskobar has written about, as I forecast last week, the invasion of the fire ants. Fire ants! 
fire ants. They are everywhere. If you've never been stung by a fire ant, consider yourself lucky uh, because fire ants are, well, fire ants are proof that there is the devil and the devil exists. And uh, I'm fascinated by insects and bugs, as many of you would have figured by episode 26 now. Uh, in fact, when I was a little kid in Sioux City, Iowa, I used to be called Bug Man because I was, not because I was bugging, that was years later, um, but because I was always out catching insects. And Sioux City was awash with insects. It was an entomologist's or a budding entomologist's dream. Entomology being the study of insects within the confines of zoological studies. Love insects. And it wasn't until I lived in Florida that I discovered that some insects could be evil. And fire ants were brought in from South America uh, in the 20s, and they have spread all over the world, especially through the southwestern United States, coming in through Mexico, um, even before the wall was built. You know, hey, bendejos, little ants. And all throughout the southwest in Florida, or sorry, the south southeast in Florida and Texas and Alabama. And they swarm. They're fucking evil. Most insects, when defending their hive or their nest, um, defending, will, of course, engage an attacker, like bees and things like that. But bees don't sit around going, hmm, bzz, bzz, bzz. let's go fuck somebody up. Fire ants do. Fire ants as a colony come out and go roaming just looking for shit to kill. And they can kill alligators. They've been seen to bring down buffalo and bison and things and giant animals in Africa. And they can be often discovered by their telltale mounds with much, many, 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 many inches of desiccated pieces of earth around it. Not like a termite mound, but low and with a rather large hole to the nest. Now, they have exacerbated their claim to the U.S. and even Australia now in Queensland and are spreading south from Queensland into Sydney and on their way to Melbourne. Although I don't think they can get into Melbourne because, you know, maybe the border's closed. Maybe Anna, Anna Palaszczuk, the Queensland premier, won't let them leave Queensland. I don't know if she's let them know, know that yet, that the borders are closed. But I just remember, and I was just reading here with this amazing article, uh, they're saying that gasoline is one of the most effective ways of killing the nest, pouring gasoline into the nest. Now, I had read that way back into the 80s when I lived in Sanibel Island, Florida. And Sanibel Island, Florida is off the west coast of Florida in the Gulf, and it is an east-west longitudinal island rather than north-south, which is quite unusual and wondrous for capturing shells just because of the configuration of the island. Never quite felt at home there um, because most of the people that were locals, quote-unquote, had been there a thousand years, like the Baileys, things like that. Had some good friends there and uh, had a lot of fire ants there. And I remember reading about gasoline being able to sort them out too. And I poured gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of gas into the holes in our yard. Um, but what I had assumed incorrectly is that you were supposed to light the gasoline. The gasoline alone was supposed to kill them, but I thought it meant ignite it. So I threw a match on all of that and like, wow, flames came out of the ground all over around the house. It was like the 4th of July. Um, we won't go into the rest of that story, but if you're ever trying to get rid of fire ants, just gasoline, no flames. I'll go into that in a future story sometime, the, the aftermath. But uh, these fire ants are coming everywhere, so just be aware. In, in fact, they've even crawled up into, I swear, I'm serious, they've crawled in through windows and up the side of cribs and into cots where babies are and stung babies to death. They're, this is like the horror movie of your future coming, so be aware. Be aware. And that's today's warning from science, bitches. Thank you, Jesse. And if after all these weeks you're having trouble with the cultural references there, that was Jesse from Breaking Bad's patented line, 
science, bitches, when explaining how adding the aluminum chips to the meth recipe made it special. Breaking Bad was so good. So good. Now, talked about ants being the devil. And speaking of the devil, uh, we just watched the last season five of Greenleaf, which I spoke about weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, maybe even months ago before season five is out here. So Greenleaf, the TV series, which was developed by Oprah Winfrey Network in the U.S. and show ran by Craig Pierce, created by Craig Pierce, amazing showrunner, showrunner being the guy that writes and uh, pretty much directs TV series. It was so moving. It was so moving. And it's a story about this mega church in Memphis, Tennessee, and the Greenleaf family, and uh, all the kids that live in this giant mansion in Memphis. And it is part soap opera, it's part drama, but it's, and it's kind of like a, a black Dallas or dynasty, because 99.7% of the cast is black. There's like two white people in there, and they're the baddies, which is great. It's reverse casting. Um, and, you know, one one is the head of a white church franchise, played by Bo Bridges, Jeff Bridges' brother, who's brilliant. Bad man, and his daughter, who's the kind of red-haired, slutty, evil daughter, and she's bad, and uh, she's a newcomer. I can't even remember what her name is, but she's fantastic. But it doesn't quite go past the preposterous that Dallas and Dynasty did. It always stays within the plausible, and it's amazing. And the finale, I'm Jewish. But they talk about the devil. This is you know Southern, Southern Baptist and. Presbyterian and crazy, wild church singing and, you know, you know, brilliant, unbelievable brilliant. I was ready to convert. It was so powerful. I was just about ready to convert to Christianity um, for a minute. And I'm not making that up. It was so powerful. I got so sucked into the church service and the, the sermon and the performances that are insane. And the writing is insane. And we have it on Netflix down here. And I think you could find it anywhere. It was quite highly rated in the U.S. in season five. Just finished in the U.S. the end of August and uh, down here. You cannot go wrong with this series. I'm, I'm still profoundly affected by it. And it's been a week since we watched the finale. Even more than Game of Thrones affected me with the finale which some people were disappointed by and not me so much. Um, I thought that was very heavy and way better than the original Seinfeld finale. Not as good as the Sopranos or Breaking Bad finale, which are the two. Oh, and including Mad Men, three of the five best in the history of television. Um, but it's still sinking and percolating in me. And um, I think I'll talk about it more and the individual actors um, in future episodes, but do not miss that series. If you're thinking, oh, I want to watch, you know, five seasons of a mega church family, just do it. Just do it. Trust me. Trust me. And why not? Have I ever steered you wrong? Sometimes I can kind of color things. Like, you know, I talked about New Zealand being a sad little place. It is. But it's also a place of beautiful, natural wonders, which is, you know, what you say about sad places if they're pretty. It's like someone trying to describe someone, you know, what's she like or what's he like? Oh, they great personality. <laughs> well, you know what they look like, okay? That's the reverse. Ugly person, great personality. Beautiful country, sad. Okay, don't get those mixed up. I kind of got both ends of the prize when uh, when I met my wife. Not only beautiful, but great personality. And also bonus smart, way too smart. I I didn't expect that. Not wasn't, wasn't even sure I even wanted it, but I got it. So, um, boy, do I have to stay on my toes. Anyway, lucky me. Punching way above my weight. That's what I went out there's money. He's punching way above his weight. He's punching way above his weight. Yep. Every day. Every day.
Lucky me. Now, speaking of punching below weight and falling way below expectations, let's talk about the situation here in Melbourne. No, 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 not about the Wu flu, but about the upcoming Lord Mayor election. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Hillary had it right. Hillary thought the Russians were affecting the U.S. election. She was half right. The Russians are affecting the Lord Mayor election here in Melbourne, but in a good way, because nothing Hillary ever said was correct. We have an election coming up here. We've, we've kind of had a dearth of positivity in the Lord Mayor situation here. When I first moved here in about 2000, we had um, John So, my bro John So. He was the uh, first Lord Mayor of Chinese descent, and he was the first Lord Mayor elected by the people. Previously, he had been elected by councillors, and he did a pretty good job. He was a, a big businessman, and other than not meeting with the Dalai Lama, which uh, created a lot of tensions there, you know, the kind of the Chinese versus Dalai Lama thing. But then again, if you've seen one Dalai Lama, you've seen them all. But um, he was pretty popular, and he was succeeded by Robert Doyle. And Robert Doyle did quite a bit for the city, at least getting things done, and pretty popular guy. But he kind of had to leave because um, not only did he have his hands in business, I think he had his hands a few places where he shouldn't have and there were some allegations there, and, and he left, if you know what I mean. Alleged. Alleged. And uh, he was succeeded by Sally Cap in 2018, um, who's done nothing. Now, granted, she hasn't had a lot of time, but uh, she's basically kind of done nothing. Not bad, not good, just do nothing, which regrettably was kind of like the um, Beilu premier government and the uh, Dennis Napthine government here, when you have, you know, really nice people, but they do fuck all. And this city's got to get moving. One, it's the most important city in Australia now, arguably. You could say Sydney used to be. Sydney used to be the hub of finance. But Melbourne, before COVID and before dictator Dan Belton rode Wu Flu bend over for the Chinese Premier Andrews, who we won't be talking about at all, because we, we don't want to go into that. Um, Melbourne was the power base, and it's where all the population has come. And we used to laugh at Sydney because Sydney locked down all their bars like at midnight because they had too much violence because the police couldn't control anything, whereas the police control everything down here. But anyway, speaking of the Russians coming, there's a wonderful young gentleman. Um, I say young. I think he's probably about 39 or 40, could be into the low 40s, named Nick Russian, who is running for Lord, Lord Mayor. And... Uh, I've only met him once at a nightclub many years ago that uh, he used to operate with his brother. But um, he is a well-known doer and a very successful businessman and young and has a lovely family and is all about revitalizing the downtown and the CBD and making Melbourne a power city and making it a city that's safe because basically after, after dark, going into Melbourne... Gangs and people from the outer suburbs and stuff like that, you know, with knives and meth and stuff like that. Not that they shouldn't be allowed to visit Melbourne uh, as long as they're in a divvy van, but um, making it safe, making the nightlife absolutely vi vibrant. Like before the recent riots in New York, New York was the safest city, major city in the world. Um, Rudy Giuliani cleaned it up. There was like no crime, no major crime there. You could walk anywhere in New York. You walk downtown, uptown, Harlem, Westtown, Queens, Bronx, just about anywhere, and you're pretty safe. Yeah, of course, things happen. But in a city of, you know, a zillion people, it's going to happen. And Melbourne is not known for safe at night. It's not known for a vibrant nightlife anymore. And right now, Melbourne is basically closed. It, it looks like, you know, Kabul. Um, or Beirut after the bomb, and he plans to revitalize it. So this isn't a cause celeb for Nick, but I do like what he seems to offer, and I think that um, I hope people here will vote for him and give him a shot because he's young, vibrant, and a businessman. And this city needs a businessman, not a politician, 
a businessman because in this climate, business counts. And um, optically, he got a nice picture in the paper with his family. He got a good-looking family. So he, he doesn't look like a Lord Mayor because Lord Mayors are usually chubby and not really attractive. Um, and if you look through the history of our Lord Mayors, notwithstanding Sally Cap, who was not chubby and unattractive, but male Lord Mayors, they, they all look like Falstaff. So good luck, Nick. The Russians are coming. You can use that slogan if you like. Now, speaking of elections and voting, technically I can't go more than 5Ks until the 28th of October, as many of you know, but the U.S. Embassy is about 12 and a half Ks, and that's where I have to vote for the U.S. election. So I have to find out how I'm going to get there to vote, because I'm certainly not going to mail vote from Australia. We know how mail voting can go anywhere. And and voting is important. And I do like going into the U.S. Embassy because they got machine guns and it gives you a really good sense of, you know, U.S. power and gun authority and, and things like that. And uh, they have no sense of humor there too, which is great. It makes it like a frightful voting experience every four years. So do I run the gauntlet? Can I get a pass to vote? I'm not really sure how this is going to work. So I've got to call Got to call Spring Street, find out. Now, a couple big international shout-outs. Just yesterday, my wife and I's favorite venue in the world to stay at, Claridge's in London, which we've called out many, many times before on this show. And uh, we're going to have a special segment coming up in future podcasts of best places to stay and best places to shop and eat while you're in international cities all around the world, all around the world, lar large and small, because you can be in a great city, doing a bit of shopping, you go, where can one eat? Where is the top place? This is not in some paid-for restaurant guide. So stay tuned for that. We're going to be helpful whether you're in Phoenix or Leningrad or London, Ontario, or London, England, or London, Ohio. God forbid. But anyway, Claridge has reopened, and um, General Manager Paul Jackson was uh, right there to supervise everything. Possibly one of the best general managers, not the best general manager of any hotel anywhere, and an all-around legend guy calling him out, break a leg, and mazel tov, and great, great success there to our friends at Claridge's. We wish we were there. We wish we were there. Fear of missing out. Well, we should be there within the next 26 years when Melbourne opens up. Also, a nice shout-out to fellow named Lalo Dagich, that's D-A-G-A-C-H, who is a uh, digital friend on Twitter who has a very, very world view of things. So well worth following and who just started following me. I've been a longtime follower there. Lalo Dagich, um, fantastic, fantastic view on things. My cousin out in the desert of Arizona, Michael Orlikoff, who's been sending me all kinds of strange Jewish-based right-wing Trump-supporting Jewish clarification emails, which will help me when I go on my barrage just before the election. Thank you, Michael. Haven't seen him in many, many, many years. And to a fellow I haven't seen in a number of years, Brett Phillips from 3Deep, who I see online from time to time. They are an amazing company based here in Melbourne that does very edge-of-tomorrow design work and um, corporate visual views for companies, 3Deep. I just admire them because everything they do is excellent, absolutely excellent. And last but not least, have you ever ordered from Etsy, E-T-S-Y? We never have. We've always been kind of an eBay kind of family for now and then for things. But uh, we needed some masks when masks became mandatory. And being the couple that we are, we needed very trendy masks to match our mini outfits, which you've heard on what is your podcaster wearing. And so we ordered a plethora of masks. And all came, except just a few. And we waited and 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 waited. And then it was like, fuck, where are they? So you send a couple of messages to the vendor and you don't hear anything, and you start thinking, oh, geez. So one click to Etsy, 
solved, money back, boom. Now, you're not talking a lot of money for a couple of masks or something like that, anywhere from 20 bucks to 90 bucks if, you know, getting a half dozen of them. But it's just nice when a company in one click sorts you out, no questions asked, they go right into it. So well done there. Absolutely well done there. Now, speaking of people that you can't trust, Coca-Cola having now announced that they're going to be trying to foist ads on us during all the streamers. By streamers, I mean Apple, Amazon, Prime, Hulu, Stan, Showtime, everything, Peacock. Coke is going to be putting ads on during streamers because ad revenue on television has been down 15% in the last six months and down 39% in the last year. So they are finding... Nobody's watching TV anymore. Nobody goes home to watch Kung Fu at 7 p.m. or Friends at 7.30 or or whatever. Streaming is different, as we all know. And so Coke is trying to just put their foot in the door there. I don't even know anyone that drinks Cokes anymore. I drink a Diet Coke at the cinema with a popcorn. But I don't know. I don't think I've seen anyone drink a Coke in a hell of a long time. But somebody must. Somebody must. Geez, every time I hear that stirring 20th Century Fox music, I get excited. Actually, one of the 10 best parties I've ever been at in my life was in 1981 at a Fox party. And that's when bazillionaire Marvin Davis bought Fox for like $722 million with, with Mark Rich. Da- Davis was like this quintessential, very chubby Jewish cigar-chomping entrepreneur, and he had the party at the Beverly Hills Hotel, which he owned, and I got invited through my ex-agent at the time, and um, oh my God, what a party. If there was anything that cemented totally why I got into the film industry, it was that party. Um, Amazing. Thank you, Fox. Thank you for that. Thank you for not buying my last script. Anyway, we're going to talk about movies. In series, because why else would I have that music on? That's not for the baking or the cooking. We don't have any baking or cooking to share. We didn't bake anything last week. We had a rather austere kitchen, very austere kitchen. We did have some nice wine, though. In fact, just about an hour ago, I had a glass of Penfold's 2017 bin number eight, just because it's Friday morning and I needed a glass of Penfold's. 2017 bin number eight, which is a great wine, about 35 bucks a bottle. It was given to me for my birthday from a good friend. And uh, I'd mention his name, but I can't remember which one because I had three friends give me wine and I don't want to get it mixed up and screw it up on the podcast. But you know who you are. Oh, yeah, it was. <laughs> yep, thanks. Um, but no baking. We'll be baking next week. But we're going to talk about a way, not where you should go if you don't subscribe but the Netflix series Away, which stars Hilary Swank. Haven't seen her in a long time after her unbelievable Academy Award for Million Dollar Baby, which could be one of my three favorite Clint Eastwood films. I just watched that again for like the 18th time. Unbelievable. Anyway, Hilary Swank, who's married allegedly to Josh Charles, He's kind of a weird guy. He's from The Good Wife. I never really liked The Good Wife, but he's fantastic in this. And they're astronauts, and they're going to go to Mars, but he has a bit of an injury and can't go. So she's off to Mars for three years, as you would, leaving her teenage daughter, who is, um, I think, about 15, played by Talitha Ilana Bateman. Never seen her before, but man, can this kid act. And she's on the ship. And she's on the ship, and it's a multicultural ship, not because it's being multicultural and, you know, inclusive and gay and all of that, because it's a multinational trip to Mars. So you've got an Indian guy, um, not like, you know, Tonto and Geronimo, but, you know, India, like, you know, New Delhi and Currys and Uber drivers and and things like that, um, played by Ray Panthaki, who's amazing. 
And you've got a Russian, a quintessential Russian, who, who's almost as good as John Malkovich's Russian in Rounders, which we'll talk about in a second. And that's Mark Ivanir. And Chinese, who's very suspicious, as all Chinese are, as we know, Vivian Wu, and um, kind of an African-Jewish Torah-reading Sudanese puzzle name played by Eto Essendov, who plays Dr. Kweezy Weisberg Evan, who thought this up. But it all works. And the reason it works so great is, A, absolutely brilliant fucking writing, which is the key to anything, which is something George Lucas never figured out in the last 28 years. Brilliant character development. You care so much about all these characters. You care about the kids. You care about how a mother could leave her daughter for three years and go to Mars. Well, I would have left my kids for three years and gone to Mars at some point, but that's, that's a whole different story. And just kidding, 10 years maybe. You learn each individual backstory for all of these characters in their respective countries so that you know what drives them. It is so multidimensional. It is absolutely fantastic. And directing, you got people like Edward, Edward Zwick, one of the top directors on the planet, David Boyd, Charlotte Brandstorm, Bronwyn Hughes, Jeffrey Reiner, Jet Wilkinson. Amazing. You have got to watch this. Give it 10 minutes. That's all you need. The first 10 minutes, if you don't like it, um, please unsubscribe and go away. But it's on Netflix. In fact, it's the number one Netflix show in Australia right now. It's astonishing. Now, in case you missed it, in case you missed it, what was I talking about? Well, as you remember, I was talking about in case you missed it. What the fuck was that? You missed it. Well, The Falcon and the Snowman and Rounders, two films that I revisited recently. The Falcon and the Snowman is a 1985 American spy drama directed by John Schlesinger. The screenplay is from one of the five best writers of all time, and certainly modern days, Steve Zalian. And it's based on the 1979 book by Robert Lindsay. And it's the story of two young American men, played by Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn, who sold U.S. security secrets to the Soviet Union. Russia, Russia, Hillary, Russia, Russia. It's amazing. It is such an amazing two-hander. And I haven't seen this film since I saw it back in 1985. And it's all over on the net right now. It just suddenly made a resurgence because CIA and FBI and spies and all that kind of stuff seems to be in the news. Fake news, Mueller probe, things like that. Anyway, it really is John Schlesinger at the top of his game. And it's Timothy Hutton back when he used to wash his hair and Sean Penn before he met Madonna at the top of their game. A must-see and the other one is Rounders. I was talking about the Russian on Away being as cool as almost John Malkovich's Russian in Rounders. If you play poker, you need to see Rounders because it's directed by John Dahl, captain of film noir, and stars early Matt Damon and Edward Norton, also young guys at the top of their game before they met strange women who ruined their lives. Anyway, that's in real life and on film. But with the poker boom in the early 2000s, this film came out in 1998. The film became an absolute cult hit. It only did modest box office. But John Malkovich plays a Russian poker psycho master. And Martin Landau, Academy Award winner, Martin Landau plays a bit of a mentor to Matt Damon. And it's kind of Matt Damon at his typical... I'm a smart guy, I'm an underachiever, I've got a mentor, you know, kind of the goodwill hunting thing, but that's what we love to see him in. And Edward Norton plays his most, you know, weaselly, wormy self. In fact, his nickname is Worm in this, as the friend who just is too much trouble, way too much trouble. And um, he doesn't get as much trouble as he does in 25th Hour, which is one of my top 50 films we'll talk about next week. But these are two that you really have to rediscover or discover. And it also stars Famke Jensen and Gretchen Moll, who were back in their early days. Gorgeous actors, actresses, and super talented. Super talented. I'm not under 
achieving the girls in these. It's just that they're supporting actors as opposed to the lead actors. You know? um, so there's no misogyny going on there, boys and girls. Maybe, you know, a little bit of racism and homophobic and, you know, other things, but no misogyny. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! And boy, I may not have baked this last week, <clears throat> but have I cooked up an outfit to burn your eyeballs to the back of your head. And that is these amazing, as you'll see in the show notes. And if you don't go to the show notes, you miss all the cool pictures and links and things like that. And that's where you can subscribe. And that's at thewayitis.blueberry.net. Thewayitis.blueberry.net blueberry spelled b-l-u-b-r-r-y dot net don't miss out on those show notes and you can comment if you're nice anyway i have burned up your eyeballs with this pair of pants from helmet lang they are so purple purple is my favorite color purple is symbolic of a lot of things we're not going to go into that but these helmet lake pants will blow your eyes out and the helmet lang helmet lang was created by Austrian fashion designer, eponymous Helmut Lang. He was born the 10th of March. He's a Pisces. In fact, 70% of the top designers that I love are either Pisces or Cancer. Water signs dominating. Anyway, the Helmut Lang brand still exists today, obviously, because I just bought these. But it's carried on without Lang's involvement since 2005. Helmut Lang, a fashion autodidact, one of my favorite words, set up a made-to-measure fashion studio in Vienna, in Austria, in 1977. And a lot of people get Austrians and Germans mixed up. Um, Austrians make better pastry and didn't kill all the Jews, but they don't make any cars. Anyway, in 1977, and he opened a boutique there in 1979. He was only 23. His clothes were fairly successful in his native Austria, and after presenting his work as part of an exhibition entitled Le Apocalypse Joyeuse, and boy did I butcher that, at the Centre Pompidou in Paris, initiated by the Austrian government, he branched out successfully to Paris and created the label Helmut Lang. Probably didn't have to think long to create that name. It's a very cool name. I wish I had a cool name like that. Anyway, at this time in the late 80s and 90s, minimalist fashion was at its height. His clothes were made with super very sharp lines, careful cuts, creating basic but extremely elegant silhouettes in high quality and often very, very high-tech fabrics, especially at the time. His work has been compared to Rei Kawabuko and Yoji Yamamoto for his sometimes austere intellectual designs. And I love Yoji Yamamoto. I just went on to Mason's Melbourne website the other day because they had like 90% off clearance and got and amazing. You knew that word was coming. Yoji Yanomoto, long sleeve shirt. And I have to thank, while we're on Masons, I do have to give a shout out to Louie. I hope I'm pronouncing his or her name right. And I'm not sure if it's a his or her, but Louie at Masons for blinding customer service, trying to figure out size for me on the internet online, which is, you know, about next thing to impossible. Anyway, getting off of Yoji Yamamoto. Anyway, Lang is still known for his minimalist, deconstructivist, and often severe designs. And he ruled the 80s and early 90s. He entered into a partnership with Prada in 2004. And he left the label in 2005. And um, there were musings about creative differences and problems with Prada. And, uh, you know, the things that happened when labels become part of other labels, included Jill Zander, the German label, and things like that. But um, it's supposed to have been an amicable change. Anyway, the design company still lives today, as you know, but Helmut Lang himself, the artist, is not associated with it. So there you go. And popped on my favorite rock runner, Valentino, shoes, and a uh, nice little jacket there. And uh, you can see me with my pet cheetah, Ellie, who is uh, just coming on one year old. Uh, and it's lovely to have a cheetah 
in the house. And um, my matching mask, my purple mask that I got from Etsy, one of the ones that was delivered. So there you go. Now, even though I said I didn't bake last week, I have developed a new recipe for my protein shake because those of you that are veterans of the podcast know that I lost a great deal of weight over a period of time. And to maintain that image so that I can wear these amazing clothes and still try and look good as all devoutly narcissistic podcasters should, uh, I had to stop snacking. So grab your pens, boys and girls. All you need is a blender. Fill it with a cup of ice. That's a big key, cup of ice. Then two teaspoons of cinnamon, not sugar cinnamon, just cinnamon. Then a couple cups of low-fat milk, a half a banana or a banana, 60 grams of whey protein and 30 grams of cassian protein. And mix it up, blend it up, put it in the fridge, and you can sip it all day. Because the more protein that you have, the fuller that you get. And you won't have all these sugar cravings and things like that. And you can actually have it as a meal, but just kind of sip it all day in the middle of the morning, in the middle of the afternoon. You think, oh, I'm a little, little bit hungry. Just have a sip. I also do add about 15 grams of creatine and 15 grams of glucosamine also. And uh, also, the reason I never get sick, we're going to give all kinds of medical advice here now because I'm, I'm not a doctor, but this is alleged free, unsolicited, not um, allegoric medical advice. Just like Dr. Fauci, who I can't say I'm a big fan of in the U.S., the one thing he came out this morning and said, he would never have a day without a mass quantity of vitamin D and vitamin C, and amongst all my other vitamins, of which I am a little bit of a hypochondriac, lots of D, lots of C. Never get sick. Not going to get woo flu. No woo flu for me or you. So that's just about all the amazing advice I could possibly give you on fashion, cooking, diet, nutrition, and politics for this week. So many amazing other things to tell you about, but they're going to wait for next week. By the way, if you're thinking of watching The Good Liar, we just watched it. Save yourself a couple hours of your life. Ian McKellen, amazing. Uh, sir, Sir Ian McKellen. Helen Mirren, amazing. Dame, Dame Helen Mirren. The director the director, Bill Condon, who did Gods and Monsters, one of the most amazing overlooked films and oh, astonishing film. Also with Sir Ian McKellen um, about the creation of Frankenstein. But it goes on for about two hours and you're thinking, wow, this is amazing. And then it goes off the rails like, you know, a train in Punjab driven by a meth-addicted driver. Uh, and it crashes badly. But it's still an okay watch. Just kind of felt like a waste of time at the end, other than the performances. It wasn't a bad movie. It just wasn't the great movie that I thought it was going to be. Uh, and we'll be talking about Lovecraft Country next week. And we'll also be talking about what's going on with all these rioters in the U.S. and how a lot of the really deadly, psychotic, evil, maniacal dangerous ones that have been arrested, especially in New York, have been from extremely wealthy families, children of wealthy families. These aren't just kids that have a little extra money. These are like zillionaire kids, which proves that um, they hate capitalism because they've grown up with so much capitalism and having everything that they want, that they're extremely bored. So what can they do for blaming their boredom but hate capitalism? Capitalism's been so successful it's put them into a malaise, and so they blame the very society that's given them everything they want. If they lived in a socialist society, they'd be getting up trying to not be killed every day and to not starve every day. But now that they're from extremely wealthy families, I believe that their hierarchy of morals and ethics have gotten so turned upside down that they're literally biting the hand that feeds them. We'll go into that more next week. So on that note, we're coming in at under an hour. That was my raison d'etre today. Give you the power in under an hour. So while you ponder what to watch on your television, because no cinemas anywhere pretty much are open, I'll leave you with the words 
of the late and immortal Hunter S. Thompson. The TV business is uglier than most things. It is normally perceived as some kind of cruel and shallow money trench through the heart of the journalism industry, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs for no reason. And I think he was right for the most part. Have a blisteringly wonderful week and we will see you when we see you. Arrivederci.